we didn't even get into the Crucifying episode, but that's well, I wanted very to do complex. That next, because yeah, um, the whole story about Barabbas I thought was amazing. And you said in your book that his first name was probably Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. In the, in the, in the early manuscripts. Like, this is not some later thing. So, and let's break down the word bar Abbas. What does that mean? Uh, okay, don't let me forget. We can launch into that, but I wanted, um, when we when I'm talking about why this is important for, for us and for Latter-day Saints, I don't want to forget what the book, what 2 Nephi 10, I want to break that down. Okay. Because we use that because that's that implies I was giving this kind of lecture to a group of people a couple of years ago and there was this guy sitting on the front row and he looked mad the whole time. Everybody else was like engaged and writing notes and stuff and he looked mad. And at the end, he said in kind of a smug way, he said, the Book of Mormon says the Jews killed Jesus. Like straight face, like he wasn't he like he wasn't giving any love. And and so um so don't forget. I want to. I want to break that down. Um, unless you want to do it real quick, and then we can jump into the bar, the, the crucify him episode. Just it's, you know, it's whatever. That's whatever you want. Um, well, you 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 want to continue with the anti-Semitism? Yeah. Let, it doesn't take very long to explain the anti anti-Semitism or how we do this um, because. And I think. Let me just read it. I think I printed it off because I can't remember the whole passage. But okay. So it's Second Nephi ten three through six. And this is what that guy was referring to, and the, and uh, and other other people throughout like sent me emails because this is not written to a Latter Day Saint. This book, the Latter Day Saint audience, so I I didn't get into this Book of Mormon stuff. But it says, verse three: Wherefore, I, as I say unto you, it must needs be expedient that Christ, for in the last night the angel spake unto me that this should be his name, should come among the Jews, among those who are the more wicked part of the world. And they shall crucify him, for thus it behooveth our God, and there is none other nation on earth that would crucify their God. Okay. That's it's pretty anti-Semitic. That's 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 bloody, right? Okay. And why don't we blame the Romans? It was the Romans who did it, right? <laughs> yeah, and what's funny is if this is so ironic that if um Christians were in the business of demonizing entire people and entire nation because of something their ancestors they thought they did. That's extremely ironic because what really happened is that the Romans killed Jesus. Tacitus, Josephus, they all, like nobody's denying it. Pilate, they killed Jesus, maybe with the help of the corrupt priestly establishment, and they were corrupt. And I don't think that's anti-Semitic to say. Everyone hated them. Uh, they stole money and they, they worked with Pilate. But no one, like the Romans did this. So if, the, if Christians, later Christians, were in the business of demonizing an entire people, it should be the Romans and then all the people that came after Rome, which became the Christians. Like the Christians became the Romans, like the center of Christianity is in Rome. And like, how come they're not killing Italians today and, de and demonizing Italians? You see, the logic is just, uh, it doesn't make sense right. to me. So when you look at this passage, it says that um, the Messiah should come among the Jews and then it qualifies it. So among the more wicked part of the world. And then what is that? Who's the more wicked part of the world among the Jews? It's those who will crucify him. It's that one portion that had power, had authority to crucify someone. That's not the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pedestrian Jews in the countryside. That's the chief priests, right? And then it says, no other nation on earth would crucify their king, would crucify their God. That word nation doesn't mean, like if we say 
North Korea is a corrupt nation. We're not talking about the entire population. We're talking about little Kim, right? Whatever his name, Kim Jong-un, whatever. We're talking about him. And it says that in verse 5, but because of priestcrafts and iniquities, they at Jerusalem, that's the priestly class, who's like stealing money from widows and you know engaging in corrupt practices. They'll stiffen their necks against him that he will be crucified. So it's simple to me. You don't even have to have any scholarship. Just read the verse. I mean, you have to know, like, it's, it's people who have power to crucify. It's at Jerusalem, and they engage in priestcrafts. So I, you know, we can't use that, you know, as, a, as evidence to, to demonize Jews. You know, when I moved to Baltimore to start my graduate program, the bishop came over. And we were talking about why I was there. And he says, you know, I, I feel sad. Like all these Jews up here. He's like, this is a foreign world up here, 10 miles north of Jerusalem. He's like, this is a foreign world. He's like, but um, I, I feel sad that all these Jews are in apostasy. Right? I'm thinking like, I said, what, what do you mean apostasy? Explain like, it's like, well, they, they reject Jesus and they don't have the truth. And I said, well, they didn't reject Jesus, like in terms of the history. And they are accepting their truth. They got the Torah. They're living their law. You know, Christ said, I have not come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill. And the word fulfill means to live, to carry out, to live the law. So Jews are continuing to do what even Jesus said they should be doing. Continue to live your law. Um, they don't think about, a lot of these Jews don't think about Jesus. So they didn't reject him. So that's kind of, that. the reason why I wanted to spend time on that is because that's why I wrote the book. I could, I could have just written another book about the historical Jesus and deal with every, you know, but, but I wanted to deal with the broader issue. I, I raised the question in the book, where did this hate come from? Where did this interpretation come from? And are Christians warranted, were they warranted in the demonization of Jews? I, I raised that question in the intro and then in the middle, right in the middle of the book, which is then where I get into Judas, the Pharisees, priestly establishment, all this rhetoric and the Jerusalem Council, that's where I really deal with it. So I just wanted to, to deal with that before we get to the bar of this. So. so is the New Testament also anti-Semitic, would you say? Um, yeah, I, they're difficult words. I would say it's anti-Jewish on some, it's complicated because the writers of uh, most of the New Testament were Jews, Jews writing to Jews or about Jews or a combination, you know, a combination of that. And so they, uh, they're not demonizing the entire Jewish people all the time. Some people like some authors like John and Matthew start to go in that direction, but they're also very Jewish writers. This is why they're pulling in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, is because their audience will care about it. So it's not just a wholesale rejection of Jews, but it is of the Jewish leadership. You know, so um, I don't think it's necessarily anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish, but it leads, superficial reading of the New Testament leads to anti-Semitic conclusions. So this is where I'm lenient. Like if, you know, if, if somebody in conference says, you know, it's like the, it's hard-hearted Jews who rejected Jesus. Like, I really hate that. It's a pet peeve, but I don't, I'm not going to call the speaker like an anti-Semitic person because the New Testament, just the way it's written, will naturally lead people into anti-Semitic conclusions. So it's soft anti-Semitism in the sense that like, we have to give people a scholarship and to help them have a new paradigm, you know. So we, we should definitely quit using the word Pharisaic, you know, you're just being Pharisaic. Yeah, and it, you know, and I, yeah, there was a time where I never used it, but it's so, like, I still sometimes say you're being like a Pharisee, 
based on how we use the term, but even, yeah, I don't, I don't like to use it. And even when I use it myself, I'm like, you know, I wish they, I started to say, you're being like a Sadducee, but that doesn't mean anything to anybody. <laughs> but I say that a lot. And I say, you're like a Sadducee. What we, and then I say, what we think are Pharisees, but it's really Sadducees. So, you know. Anything else on the anti-Semitism angle then? Um, because it sounds like you think John and Matthew are the most, uh, they, they, they attack Jews the most. Is that true? Much less than Mark and Luke? Yeah, much less. Yeah, much less. And so we think Mark was the first because it's got the worst grammar. At least that's what Tom Wayman said. Well, it's the worst grammar. It's the shortest. It's the most. Um, it doesn't have the resurrection story, or at least the original. That's right. Yeah. It, it, you can literally see in the text where Matthew and Luke are using some of the stories from Mark and then expanding them. And yeah. scholars who are great at uh, textual transmission and textual borrowing, it, it doesn't work the other way as well as it works the way where Mark yeah. is influencing. And Mark doesn't have a birth story either. Yeah, no birth story. Yeah. No birth story, no resurrection. The apostles just, the stone was rolled away and they left a right? Mm -hmm. right, that's, right, right? That's the original that's right. ending. Yeah. Um, and then Matthew said, oh, I'm going to improve on that. And he was after. So do you think Mark was before or after this Jerusalem council? Uh, after. I definitely think it's after. But I don't know if he, or whoever, you know, whoever's writing it, I don't know if the author of Mark is so steeped in the, in the conflict that he, he takes every opportunity to take shots at Peter or Jews or Pharisees. Like there's some of that in there. But Matthew just blows that up. Like he takes every opportunity to take, he's taking shots at, at everybody. Okay. And then Luke softens it. Yeah. Luke and then, softens Matthew. Yep. Luke still has some stuff in there where you're like scratching your head, but he, he seems to be a little bit more nuanced and where Matthew's saying Sadducee, Pharisees and Sadducees are doing this. Luke all the time. He's, he doesn't say Pharisees. He might say, you know, chief priests and scribes or, or Sadducees and scribes or something. You know, you could have scribes who are Pharisees, but like he's very, he, like he sees what Mark and or Matthew is doing, especially Matthew, and he changes it. It's like, okay, why is he changing it? And then you add up all those changes, and you can see some 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 themes, some some repeated like a, a theme here, and that is Luke is trying to tell us something. He's trying to pull back a little bit. And then John is just his own guy. He's completely different. Uh, I've heard John referred to as a Gnostic, as possibly written by a Gnostic writer. Do you have any opinions on that? Uh, no, I don't even know if – I've looked at the Johannine scholarship, and I'm not convinced because a lot of people, a lot of scholars will just will deal with the formulaic, okay, Mark first. And it even annoys me when – I'm not a New Testament scholar in the sense that in my graduate training, I didn't get this nuanced – like I didn't get a whole class on the gospel of of John, where we just read John and we're dealing with textual. Like that's, that wasn't my training. My training is in Jewish studies and Jewish history and text. But when I read the scholarship from largely Christian scholars on these texts, it's kind of silly because they'll say, Mark was written in the late 60s. You know, Matthew's written by 80, Luke 85. I'm like, how do you get 80 and 85? Why those five years? I, I'm not seeing anything in the, in the scholarship that, that could justify like an 80 and an 85 and then John coming last. Um, I see these texts written after the Jewish-Roman War in the 60s, and I, we can also see how some texts are borrowing from other texts, and so you can you can give a chronology of who was written first. But I, I don't – in terms of John, yeah, there's his Gnosticism. He's completely different. 
And so some scholars say he's written last. Like, I I don't know. I don't know. How do we know he's written last? Just because it's extremely different. Um, it's, it's problematic in the sense, not problematic. It's different in the sense where you have the synoptic gospels have this massive theme of, um, parables and exercising demons. John has none of that. None of it. It's completely different. Um, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus' ministry is one year. It's not three years, it's one year. If you just if you literally look at where he's going, what festivals he's, you know, it's one year. In John, it's two years. We say that people say three years by tradition because he went to Jerusalem at the beginning, middle, and end of his, his ministry, but that's only two years, beginning, middle, and end. It's not three full years. So there's enough differences in the time, geography, the themes. He's 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 talking about vastly different things. Like he wants to, he has the highest Christology. Jesus is the most divine in John. He's the least divine in Mark. So if you you know trace the development, that maybe that's why people say John is really late, is because it wouldn't make sense where he's right out of the gates in like the sixties. The first writer on Jesus is like he has him really divine. Like you can see a progression through the decades where they're. They're not making it up. They're not saying, oh, he was a teacher and now he's divine at birth. But John's pushing his divinity before birth. And it's like, that that's the way that Bart Ehrman goes with it. He explains that its he can see his divinity growing as you go along. I don't know if it's that simple. but hmm. All right. Well, let's jump back to Barabbas then. Um, because, well, I guess these are there's two things I, I kind of want to talk about. Um, and hopefully they're related. Um because it seems like you said every king was known as a son of God. Every Israelite king. I don't know about right? every king. Yeah, the, the idea was that, yes, near ancient Near Eastern kings and then especially Israelite kings, and even David, was called um, like God's son. Like in Psalms, we find this where David or God says, you know, you, you will be on my right hand and I will, you will be my son and there's this this relationship of like a familial father son type rhetoric being used, and so then Barabbas Bar means son. I think most people know that son of, and then Abba. I mean that's what Jesus said, father, right? So Barabbas means the son of God, right? Yeah, so I mean if if they're saying father is actually God, but right. the son of the father, yeah, yeah. And and is and then where did you find out that his first name was Jesus? This is in some of the, the earliest manuscripts where the, the word Jesus is used, and then some of the early Christians like Origen or Oregon or however you want to say it in English, third century theologian, I think third century. He he makes this point. He says we have in our tradition in the text that his first name was Jesus, but we know that that's false because no one ever named Jesus was a criminal. So it's removed uh, by the early Christians. They, they don't like that. They don't like, they don't know what Matthew's doing by <laughs> setting up in this great irony, Jesus, son of the father versus Jesus Barabbas, son of the father. Right. So that's where, that's where that, it could also be um, Barabban, son of a teacher. But either way, either way, it's, it's not a name, it's a nickname. Okay. Because even in the text where you have, I mean, it could have been a name, but even Matthew says, Jesus, who is called, or Barabbas, who is called, what does he say? Jesus, who was called Barabbas, something like that. He says, who is called. And then he says, and he also, Jesus was there, who was called Messiah. 
and this is all throughout. You know, we got John and um, John and his brother are called Sons of Thunder, and there, there's all kinds of like this is a this is a standard practice of you give there's a nickname uh, that you give to people, and so yeah, they're not necessarily proper names; it's a nickname, which which makes sense. And so these, the reason why we're talking about this, uh, we're launching into bar offices because this story is crucify him episode is, is exhibit a for how um for a passage that christians have used to demonize jews and say of course they're going to be dispersed of course they're going to be scattered of course the holocaust is going to happen because it was prophesied even jews themselves said their sins crucify him and that that sin will be upon or that act will be upon our heads and the heads of our children that blood will be on our heads so that's, that's why the passage is very, very, very important for understanding uh, the reason why people point to that and not like he's, he's in, he's with the Sanhedrin, he's with Caiaphas, but, but that's where it seems like Christian interpreters are saying, okay, here's now where the nation like, condemns themselves. The problem with the whole story is starts with Barabbas because we don't know, there's lots of different problems with the story. So number one, there's no evidence in Josephus or anywhere else that there was a Passover pardon where a prisoner was released. This only happens in Greece, and it happened in the centuries before Jesus, and it stopped in the first century. So scholars will suggest that maybe Mark, who was written to Gentiles, appropriated that or adopted that in to flesh out the story. Okay, Even if we take that as historical, that there was a Passover pardon the morning of pa- after Passover, right? Or the morning, basically the morning of or after Passover, when you have a lot of pilgrims there uh, and the city swelled to, to a couple million people. Um, even if we take that as historical, there's problems with the setting, historical problems. And one of those is Barabbas. So you have Barabbas put up there as who has the exact same name as Jesus. And some later commentators say that this is probably, it was probably just only Jesus. But later Christians who wanted to demonize Jews, there were two different, they, they wanted to demonize Jews. And so they put up another Barabbas there in great irony. It's the, it's the, they let the wrong son of the father go. And this is, again, is borrowing from Leviticus of the scapegoat, right? Where you have two goats that's brought in, in the day of atonement and you have um, the, these goats are blessed. One is killed, sacrificed, and the other one is let, let, let go out in the wilderness, right? So this, is, this has that um, hanging over it. But even if we take um, Barabbas as historical, let's say, let's say the pardon is historical, let's say the Barabbas figure is historical, you have another problem with how the story plays out where I ask my students and ask myself when I was doing this, what is this setting? Who's there? Who's to blame and what happened? It, it doesn't make sense that you would have 10,000 people there or 20,000 people all saying crucify him. We know where this would have lo- been located. It's like it's in the part of the city by the Antonio Fortress, most likely. And we know the landscape. There's not that much room for a massive group. It's not, it's not up on the Temple Mount where you could get 100,000 people. It's, it's in a different location, a very small setting. And... So we ask ourselves, who was present? Who was present? Well, we know Pharisees disappeared. They're not there. Jesus' own disciples who fled 12 hours before, they're not there. So who's there at the meeting? 
who's who's there? It's the priestly establishment, and it seems like you know one theory is that they they were working with Pilate to rig the pardon, because if Pilate says, "Who do I release?" Like, should I release Jesus? Whether Jesus is alone or whether there's a real figure, Barabbas. If if he says, "Who should I release?" Even if there were some followers of Jesus, like his mother, somebody says, "Release Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Son, our Messiah." Then the, Sadduc- the the chief priest could say, "Hey, Pilate, they're yelling for Jesus, so release Jesus Barabbas." You see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. we also know that they could have. It says that the chief priests already sought false witnesses earlier for Jesus, so they they could have rigged the the crowd. They could have planted people in the crowd, like they like they did before, to to yell out, "Crucify him!" So that's one theory. The other theory is that uh, Pilate did this because Pilate, Pilate looking like some naive, politically naive, nice guy, where he's just going to capitulate to, uh, to whatever the, these Jewish priests want. That doesn't make sense either because we know a lot about Pilate. We know him from Philo. We know him from Josephus. Philo says he was vindictive. He was hot tempered. He killed a lot of people without a trial. Um, there's, there's no chance that Pilate would have said, I find no fault in this man. If Jesus really did have a parade into Jerusalem, you know, with all of, um, with, with people yelling, you're the Messiah. And then he's contending with priests and he cleanses the temple. And he's got a whip. You know, if, if all that is historical, you wouldn't, there, it's not a chance that Pilate would let a messianic wannabe in his view go, like really be released during Passover, which is often a time when you have zealots and people like this is the very time when they celebrate that moment when uh, their other savior, like Moses, freed entire nation from a foreign oppressor. This is when, like, you have hundreds of thousands of people there. Pilate's not releasing. Like, he, he's, Josephus mentions all, all, a bunch of other people who Pilate himself killed and slaughtered a lot of their followers, like messianic type people. So that's problematic. Um, the other problem with the story is that if you had a whole bunch of people yelling out, a whole bunch of Jews yelling out, you know, crucify him and the blood will be upon us and our children, on our heads and on our children, there are specific instances in uh, in the Torah, in Exodus, you know, that says that the the sins of the children, the sins of the father, should not pass down to the children. So you wouldn't. And this is also in Ezekiel. It's in a bunch of other places. So it'd be you're very hard pressed pressed to find a group of people who are not the priests who are going to say Caesar's our king, like they say that Caesar's our king, and crucify him. All the blood will be on us. It has to be the priestly establishment. If I'm some, if I'm, uh, if, I, if a Jewish, if I'm a, a Jewish guy who has two kids, and I set up a tent, I come on a pilgrimage and I set up a tent two miles between Bethlehem and and, and Jerusalem, I'm not going in the morning to travel all the way to Jerusalem to watch Pilate release some guy that I've never heard of. You know what I mean? Or even if I've heard, and if I've heard, if I've heard of him, and he's one of my, he's like a, he's one of our Galilean like miracle workers. And I do make that trek. I'm certainly not going to say, "Yeah, crucify him." You know, so it's possible that Pilate wants to embarrass any Jesus followers who happen to be there. And if he's like, "They're going to make a fool out of me and have a parade into Jerusalem and yell about this guy," then I'm going to, to embarrass them. I'm going to set up this criminal, this other guy, who these priests said it also named Jesus. And regardless of how they yell out, if they yell out Jesus, I'm still going to release Jesus Barabbas. I'm going to embarrass these guys because they made me look like a fool. And you know, if things get out of hand, Caesar's going to come after me. That fits Pilate's, like that fits his personality. Mm-hmm. 
So that that's all just to say that the, the story itself has historical problems of, you know, Jews yelling out and, you know, it doesn't say there's a huge group of people, but you can't blame six to eight million Jews in the Roman Empire. On the, You can't use that episode to come to that conclusion. So is that, I mean, it really sounds like you're casting doubt on the historicity of that event. Is that? Yeah, at least it's how it's told. At least it's how it's, uh, how it's presented. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it seems like there was another story. Is it John chapter 8 that you said? Oh, right, 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 right. Let's tell us of that story. Is that, is that historical? That's one of the passages where I, about the Pharisees, where I you know, went through each passage. And this is one that you can, seems very negative, and it's one used to demonize Jews. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. In the first 11 verses of John chapter 8, you get the famous story of the stoning of the woman. She's, you know, and the movies really capture this. Like it really shows our interpretation because it's Pharisees against Jesus. And you have Pharisees dressed in these black with gold embroidered hats looking ridiculous. That's not historical. That's, that's anti-Semitic. Um, it's become anti-Semitic to portray these people. They're not even priests. Why are they wearing all this weird garb that's black? That's number one. That's how they're portrayed. But even in the story, if you forget about the media portrayal, even in the story, you have a woman brought, um, she made a mistake. They want to, they want to stone her and kill her. And then Jesus says, if, if any of you have sins, go ahead, like fire away. And then they walk off. That story does not show up in the manuscripts until like the fourth or fifth century. The, the manuscripts that are being copied, all of a sudden that story that, that shows up. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's not in the manuscripts. Other times it's in Luke. And so it's kind of bouncing around, but it first appears on the scene like 400 years after Jesus. And the reason why is because it's a story that that uh, caric- caricaturizes, whatever, mm-hmm. puts these puts Jesus and Pharisees in this thing where you've got the Christianity, which is a religion of love, as as uh, shown through Jesus. Judaism is a religion of stoning, of rigidity hate um, and death and violence and killing as evidence through the Pharisees. So that's why the story came up. That's why. And I, I, I'm a little bit annoyed because even in evangelical conservative churches, some of them, they'll have their, their Bible, whatever the translation is, has a parenthetical statement. This does not show up in the original manuscripts. Like we're one of the last groups of people that continue, that continue to use, like take this story as historical. And even some of my colleagues here, uh, I won't mention names, but some of them I heard, I've heard them say, or in the writings, or in, like a class, like if I sit in a class, I've heard two or three different times where they'll say, they'll acknowledge it doesn't show up in the original manuscript, but it fits the first century setting. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't even remotely fit what we, what we know about Pharisees, for like for the reasons I've like shared. Yeah, they're much more lenient and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, it just it doesn't make sense for them to follow leaders and stone people and. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. So how much of the Gospels are historical then? Can you put a percent on it? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question because... Because it sounds like, you, you, I mean, in your book, you went into so much detail about this story mirrors this story, this story mirrors this story. And, you know, the question comes in like, can we believe that anything is, is historical? You know, and we talked about the Jesus Seminar with the beads. Did this really happen? 
Um, yeah. Well, okay. Let me. I guess I. So let me. Should we use one case study, and then I'll ask you what you think. Like, okay. What, what what what's the possible interpretations? You have in Zechariah and in Ezekiel, both in both of those books and in Acts. So you have this, like in Zechariah. Well, let's start in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, you have Ezekiel sees a vision where the presence of God is over um, Jerusalem, like the God's presence. It moves. He sees it moves over to the Mount of Olives, the mountain east of Jerusalem, and it goes up to heaven. And then later in the book, <clears throat> he sees that the presence, <clears throat> the presence of God comes down over the Mount of Olives and enters Jerusalem through the east gate. You know, God's presence is here again. In Zechariah, you have the figure, the Messiah figure, or the, this divine figure, touch down. When he comes again, he'll touch down on the Mount of Olives, right? And then he'll go, and in, in Zechariah 14, I think he, he goes and he a- enters Jerusalem through the east gate. You have, um, you have David in 2 Samuel 5, where right before he becomes, like right after he's crowned, like right after his coronation, what does he do? He enters Jerusalem. Like he goes to Jerusalem and contends with the Jebusite leaders. All of that is, is where you have Jesus going to the Mount of Olives, gets two donkeys. He has his coronation, so to speak, coming down the mount. Like he's going, he's, he's on the Mount of Olives. He goes there for a reason, enters the gate, just like Ezekiel, just like Zechariah, just like David does. And then when David, right after his coronation, he goes to the Jebusite city and he starts, he's threatening to break into the city and immediately is in contention with the Jebusite priests. And what do they say? He's like, this city is so well fortified that it, even our, line, our, our lame and our blind will turn you back. Like we're so strong that even our weakest among us will, will kill you. We'll, we'll turn you back. And David says, no, when I break into to, to the city, um, I will turn the, blan- the, li- the lame and the blind out and they'll never be welcomed back into, um, into like what is now the temple now. Like they won't be welcomed back. All that's to say that this is, this is Jesus. Like this is, this is Jesus's experience. He's crowned king, like, like he's a coronation from his people. He goes into the East Gate. He's immediately uh, thrown into contention with the priests. And what does it say? It says when he starts whipping people and he's doing cleansing the temple, it says the blind and the lame come running to the temple. And then out of the mouth of babes, they say, here's the Messiah, the son of David. That's precisely what, like that's precisely the elements in the David story. Because then not only does David turn out the blind and the lame, but there's a prophecy in Jeremiah 31 where he says in that day, the blind and the lame will be welcomed back to Zion, like to the temple now, right? So there's sort of, sort of like, prophecy, some prophecy, you know, clearly the reason why I'm saying all this is because Matthew, who's putting all that in there, knows of all those prophecies. In Psalm 8, it says, the, the, out of the mouth of babes, they will cry, you know, they will cry out. And so it's the story itself is kind of strange when Jesus isn't there. Why are the blind and the lame and little babies in, in the middle of a riot? They won't, the blind and the lame won't be running into a riot and there's certainly people are going to get their babies, their babies, and leave. Matthew's putting it in there. The whole the way he enters Jerusalem, what he says, what he does, the blind and the lame are there because it's about David and it's fulfilling prophecy. So the question I have is with that kind of a story, with Ezekiel, Zechariah, 2 Samuel 5, Psalm 8, Jeremiah 31, all that just dumped into the story. What is that? Is it historical? I mean, is, is it, it not is historical? Is it fulfilling profo- prophecy or a type or whatever you want to say? It could be, but what what would that? Um, we'll just think out loud. What, what would that? How does that work in terms of our Latter Saint understanding or Christian, like whatever Latter Saint understanding of God? Like, 
what would God have to, how much control would he have to have? And how much micromanaging would he have to do for, for a thousand years from David to Jesus to move the chess pieces so that David did this, and Zachariah said this, and the blind and lame are there with Jesus, and the babes cried out to, like, somebody could say, yeah, he's feeling, fulfilling prophecy, and it's possible that Jesus himself knows of the prophecies. He's like, I know the prophecies, so I'm going I'm to go to the Mount of Olives. I'm going to get a donkey. I'm going to go in, and I'm going to do this thing. That's possible. But there are some places where the narrator um, doesn't say that Jesus said that. The narrator is creating the story um, to pull in reference after reference after reference. I'm not saying that it's not historical. I'm just saying, what are our, when, when Judas is fashioned after Ahithophel and Yoav, uh, David's generals who are joining the conspiracy, and then Amasa, his other, they, they get killed, and it just so happens to fit. It's, it just makes you wonder. Uh, you have to deal with what the text says and you have to say, okay, are we going to worry about historicity or are we going to appreciate that these texts are meant to do something? I mean, I don't know how to answer that. Um, that's why I'm here. Yeah. You know, I'm supposed to ask the questions. I answer them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it could be, it's, it could be, it could be both. There, certainly there's historical kernels all over the place and, and, um, Historical Jesus scholars say, you know, here's a very early, like an, it's an Aramaic, uh, it's an Aramaism that Jesus says. So it's, it must be dated early. And, um, you know, there's there's all kinds of different data points that we, you know, there, here's a guy from Nazareth or from Capernaum or up in Galilee. And he's in the text. He shows up in Josephus briefly, shows up in Tacitus. He shows up in these other texts. He shows up in the Talmud all over the place, the, the rabbinic writings of a guy who was, the holy man, people thought he was a miracle worker. He was ended up eventually killed by Rome. And so we can fill in all the details. I think I think if he was killed by Rome, obviously he did something like storm into the temple on a certain parade and criticized and people thought he was the Messiah. So yeah, I mean, you can start to put meat on the bones and say, this is, you know, we don't have to throw everything out. But I'm not one to, to the reason why this is important for me is because people use an obscure statement in Obadiah and they combine it with Genesis and they pull out a passage in Hebrews and Revelation and they put together this some scenario where they're saying, this is how we should live our lives as Christians, or this is when the second coming is going to come, what's going to happen. And you get a lot of, you get a lot of critics of, um, of the church um, and even some people in the church where it's an easy attack to use. They'll, they'll say something like, even members of the church too that have not left, you you use Jesus and it's the superficial thing where you say, well, even Jesus hated the, like he even pushed back against the establishment. He didn't, he threw away the manuals and the the structure and it was like, they're doing that and they do it all the time to take shots, to try to take a shot at the church saying, we have, we, we should be criticizing the prophets. Um, We should be like, Jesus criticized them. You know, so I, I'm not making a statement about, I'm not judging uh, ex-Mormons or like their methods. They can fight their fight. That's fine. But I just don't like it when people use the scriptures and pull out passages and simplistic narratives to justify actions, whether it's demonizing Jews, whether it's demonizing the church, whether it's something else, you know, whether it's, let's try to figure out when the second coming's going to happen and, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that people use the scriptures for to, to justify behavior. And 
every time I see them do this, I want to say, okay, you need to learn 500 things about the history, the context, what the prophets are doing before you can say, absolutely, here's a prophecy and here's what's going to happen. So that, that's why this stuff is important to me. It's not, it's not to just go in the classroom and say, we can't take any of this. Like, let, let me just cram this down your throat and like force you to say that this is not historical. The only, the reason why is to just help them become a little bit more engaged with the text and to see the angles, see what scholars are doing, why scholars do it, what the implications are, what the sources are, uh, so they can appreciate it. They can appreciate what happened and how we know it, what had happened. You know, we can say anything we want in church. We don't know what Jesus said to Caiaphas. He died after that. So how do we know what he, oh, that conversation, how do we know? We don't know what he said. And some of my colleagues will say, yeah, but Jesus gave it in Revelation. Like he, re- he revealed it to the author of Matthew and Matthew wrote it. Okay. Uh, I mean, that doesn't really fit with how, what we know about Revelation. Like how many Revelations are someone given where they're writing detail and not, not only that, Matthew's not even in agreement with Mark, not even in agreement. So this, if it was a revealed conversation within, within 10 years, it's, it's like complicated because now Luke doesn't agree with Matthew and like we, we don't have the revelation. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, as LDS, we like to say we believe the Bible is the word of God as far as it's translated correctly. But then you hear these stories that, uh, the woman at the well, that wasn't in the original text. And then, you know, the the short ending of Mark, that the resurrection didn't happen and there's no birth story. And for some people, I think those can lead to a crisis of faith and say, well, can I, can I trust anything? I mean, is, is the, you know, there are plenty of people who say that the Book of Mormon is, um, like inspired fiction or something. Inspired fiction. Could, could you, I mean, there, there will be people, Bart Ehrman, I guess, would be one of those, you know, is, are the gospels just fan fiction for, for Jesus, you know, tennis shoes among the Nephites, right, essentially. Right. How would you respond to that? Um, I would, it's okay if my students ask that question in class, is this just, is this just made up stuff? I, you know, and I'd say no. I mean, all, all semester long, we've looked at, um, we've looked at Jesus. We've looked at all these different scenarios, the mealtime symposia, the, you know, the, the rift between Paul and Peter. And like, th- there's clearly a story here. There's clearly somebody who was killed, who was believed to be a messianic candidate. In other words, people thought he might be the Messiah or a miracle worker. He had followers. There's traditions about where he died and, you know, where, the, where he was born, where he died. All that's there. And so these stories, these parables, some of them go, I don't think, I don't think the author of Matthew and Mark are just making up a bunch of parables out of thin air, like these brilliant parables. I do think some of that is, a lot of that is oral tradition coming from the teachings of Jesus. And sometimes they change them or they, they, you know, they, they see that Jesus said something, but they don't know the context. And so they, they create a context. Like in one example is when Jesus comes out of the temple with his apostles. And it said, the apostle said, look, Jesus, what great big stones there are. Like that's a child, that's a, a child's way to say something. Look, like what big teeth you have. Like, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. they've been, they know what the temple is. They've been there many times. So for them to come out of the temple and, and pretend like they've never seen it. Look, Jesus, what big stones there are. That's because the writer doesn't have the context and he want the, the oral tradition is that Jesus said not one of these stones will be left upon. Like he, that's tradition that Jesus maybe prophesied of this. That's oral tradition. They prophesied of the destruction of the temple, but they don't know the setting. 
So they create the setting. Mm -hmm. It's coming out. So it, that's all it is. I mean, it's still historical, right? It's just we have to, you know, be careful about how we interpret it and how we use it and why we know what we know. But my motive for the Judas stuff and for the Pharisees and understanding when the Gospels were written and they were written after the Jerusalem Council, the reason why I do all that is um, it's not just for scholarship's sake. It's to help my students. And after my students read a lot of those chapters and we discuss it, they're blown away. They say, I never, like one girl, last time I taught this, she said, I've never understood what it meant to study the scriptures. Mm 